Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you would like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribing to the podcast. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Today, we have Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. Michael Saka is currently the general manager at Dribble.com, previously president at Crew and co-founder of Rocketship.fm. Mike Belsito is the author of Startup Seed Finding for the Rest of Us and co-founder of the Product Collective, which organizes industry one of the largest product management summits anywhere in the world. Rocketship.fm is part of the Podglomerate Network, a podcast company that produces and distributes exciting new shows. Select clients include MIT, Expedia, and RBC, among others. Michael and Mike, how is it going? Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for having us on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. We're, we're excited to be here. We really appreciate you having us on the show. It's our pleasure. When you started working together so closely, did you guys have to decide who will be Michael and who will be Mike to keep it simple? That's fun. You know, it actually just sort of worked out um, the way that it is right now. You know, Michael, since I've known him has gone by Michael and I've always gone by Mike, so it just it just kind of worked out. But it's it funny when we first got in touch with each other, I was actually pitching Michael to be on the show, to be on Rocket Ship. And um, and it ended up that, that I was going to be in Las Vegas at, and then Michael was living in Las Vegas at the time. So we decided to get together and um, that's how we first met. But yeah. you never had to have that sort of, you know, knockdown, drawn out fight about who would claim Michael or Mike, thankfully. That's awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? And if you could give us a little bit of a background of the journey that led you to this point in your careers. Yeah, I mean, so we're old now. Um, yeah, not old. So there's, there's, there's a long, uh, long history here. Um, but I'll, I'll uh, as, as briefly as possible, um, when I, I graduated college, I had a music business degree. Um, there, there was no jobs in the music business uh, as Napster had just uh, completely decimated the industry. This is the early 2000s. Um, and so I moved out to LA. I couldn't get a job anywhere. I ended up just working at restaurants. Um, and I ended up moving in with a friend uh, who uh, worked about four hours a day. Maybe he would go into his office around noon he'd leave by four he'd come home with a couple of bottles of wine um he was making really good money because he wrote some software that the company needed and they couldn't fire him because he was the only one that knew how to 
how to run it. Um, and it was it was from him that I learned how to to code. Um, eventually, built up a small agency. Um, eventually, had clients. You know, years later, like Scholastic, um, into it, Kobe Bryant uh, that we were working with, and then um, eventually burnt out on the agency side and joined Crew. Um, which is the parent company of Unsplash, where I became the president. Um, along that time, we founded uh, Rocketship.fm, which was really just so we could talk to people um, who wouldn't take our phone call otherwise. So uh, it was the best way to get them on the phone for 30 minutes and ask them the questions that we wanted to ask because um, we couldn't afford consulting calls with all of them. And, um, you know, here we are about eight years later, um, Mike's joined the journey about, what is it? Four, four years ago now, um, so. which has been, which has been absolutely incredible. And, um, yeah, so that's now, um, we sold crew to dribble and now I, I run the, the day to day of the dribble business unit under, uh, dribble holdings. And with that, I'll hand it over to Mike. Yeah. Well, you know, Michael's story started with music. Mine will start with sports. I actually studied sport management um, for my undergraduate degree, went to Bowling Green State University. And at that time, I thought I wanted to be a division one college athletics director. That was that was what I was focused on. I had a whole slew of internships throughout college, actually not just in college sports, but also pro sports, working for sports agencies, sports marketing companies. Um, so it's kind of was a wide range. But I remember right before graduating, having a conversation with the athletics director at Bowling Green. And he said, well, Mike, what do you, what do you want to do? Like, what are you planning to do? And I said, well, I'm going to be like you, you know, I want to be an athletics director. And he said, well, okay. You know what? So what's your plan for that? And I said, well, I'm get a master's degree in sports management. It seems to be what everybody's doing. And he goes, okay, well, look, if, if you do want to be an athletics director, instead of getting a master's degree in sport management, you know, that you're just going to learn the stuff you've already learned, get it in business. Cause look, I'm the CEO of the athletics department. So go get an MBA. If you want to, you don't need to do that right out of college, but if you're going to do anything right out of college, um, in, in terms of getting a graduate degree, get, get a graduate degree in business. And so I did that. I went to uh, case Western reserve, uh, to get my MBA. And on the very first day, I introduced myself to the athletics director and I said, hey, I'm going to be here for the next two years. I'd love to intern in your athletics department. And, you know, hey, I was just doing corporate sponsorships uh, this past summer. I'd love to intern in your corporate sponsorship group. And she said, well, Mike, that would be amazing. But we don't have a corporate sponsorship group. You know, you, you went to Bowling Green. That's a division one school. We're division three. You know, we, we don't have the money to hire somebody to do that. We don't have the, enough people to take somebody who's already here and have them focus on it. And so I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know that that was the case. I probably should have done some, some better research there. So I just sort of blurted out, well, that's okay. Let me start it. You know, I'll, I'll start it from scratch. I'll, I'll create the sponsorship program. I'll, I'll create the inventory. I'll sell it and just pay me maybe a percentage of whatever I raise. You don't have to pay me anything more than that. Now I got lucky because I turned out that was her first day on the job. Her name was already up on the website and her emails up on the website. But when I met with her, that was her first day in the job. She probably wanted to put her stamp on something right away. And so I created that sports, uh, that sponsorship program for that university. Um, and within 60 days, I sold, I don't know, $30,000, $40,000 worth of sponsorships, which at Bowling Green, drop in the bucket. But at Case, um, that pays for a coach's salary. And, and that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. And that's what kind of got me interested in entrepreneurship. Over the next two years, I ran that program. And when I left, 
I had some options to sort of go in the sports direction, but I kept asking myself, well, gosh, I wish there was a career where you could do what I've done this last two years, you know, come up with ideas, your own ideas, and then, you know, just make them happen. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute, that that's what entrepreneurs do. Right. So um, I ended up joining a company as employee number one, um, uh, totally outside of sports. It was a, uh, but it was a company here in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, I was with that company for six years until I think when I left, we had 120 employees and then left that company to start my own business. And now I'm on business number two with Product Collective, which is a community for product people, product management professionals. And, um, you know, I think I've always had some side side hustles going on, rocketship.fm being one of them for the past few years. So that's kind of my entrepreneurial story, if you will. I love it. Can you tell us more about the Product Collective? And can you tell us more about the origin story of the show? I'll let Michael tell the origin story of the show. I'll tell the origin story of Product Collective, though, which actually I... Um, you know, we started back in 2015 as a conference, like the community. So Product Collective is a community for product management professionals. I'll start there. And and we have a number of things for them um, from our conference series, Industry, the Product Conference, which is now one of the largest product management conferences anywhere, um, and the New York Product Conference, which we just acquired recently. Um, but we also have a video chat series where multiple times a month we have hundreds of people joining us live for video chats. We have an active Slack group. We have a newsletter that goes out to 30,000 people, video on demand, you, you all sorts of things, really helping product people. And the reason is none of us went to school for this. I mean, product management isn't one of these professions where, you know, you got your degree in product management. That that was never really a thing, you know? And, um, and I kind of found myself in that place a few years ago. I had a startup that um, that actually failed, you know, like we were acquired, but it wasn't the kind of acquisition where I got to go live on a beach for a long time or anything like that. I had to go find a job and I got recruited to be a product person um, at a couple different companies. And I had to Google, like, what does a product manager do? And, and it, I come to learn, it was a lot of the same things I was doing as an entrepreneur. I just wasn't really thinking about it that way. And so I was just trying to figure out what it meant to be a product person on the fly. Cause that, that company, I tried telling them I didn't know what I was doing and they sort of didn't want to take that as an answer. They're like, no, Mike, nobody went to school for this. You'll be fine. And, um, and yeah, so basically I was just trying to find my people, right? I was reading books and blogs and listening to podcasts. And I found that I, I really enjoyed talking to other product people about it. And so eventually we started Product Collective just as a place for people like us to find a sense of community, I guess, and, and try to feel like uh, a little bit more prepared to be a product person um, at, at whatever company we're with. And so Anyway, that's the story for Product Collective. Uh, and of course, Rocket Chip predates Product Collective. So I'll let Michael tell that story. Yeah, yeah. So um, at the agency, you build a lot. As I was running a, a small uh, digital agency. And at an agency, you build a lot of products um, for other people. And so we kind of got the, the, the notion that we were really good at building products um, but what we weren't really good at was marketing. Um, and so we wanted to build our, our own product. And so we built this, this product brandisty, um, at the time I was a designer, front end developer was kind of what I did functionally inside of the agency in addition to, to sales. Um, but, um, we, we launched the product and like, nobody came, 
right? So there was no, you know, we, we had this whole uh, map up on the wall of all the people that were visiting the site in real time. There's just nobody there. Um, we had like a couple of people trickle in. So I quickly realized that we were really bad at telling our story, at marketing, at actually launching a product. We could build the product, but we didn't know how to, to, to take it to market. And so um, I called up Matt and Joel and, and I said, hey, why don't we figure out how to get some people on the phone? So originally we we're going to write a book. It was going to be called How to uh, Build a Rocket Ship. We actually didn't know how to build a rocket ship, so we had to call people. Um, and that, those were our initial interviews. And we just recorded the interviews, and we just started putting them out on a, on a podcast called How to Build a Rocket Ship. And the podcast took off. So we, we got picked up inside of uh, these bootstrap communities. People were really interested in these interviews. And like a couple months in, we realized we don't really want to write a book because we're not writers. Um, let's just keep doing the podcast. So the first 200 episodes are, are really just us interviewing founders. And then once Mike came on, we really started to edit editorialize the show into uh, what it is today, which is uh, a much more polished version. But yeah, the 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 first 200 episodes were really built on us trying to learn from uh, experts. And it, a lot of it was the interviews were about the things that we were struggling with um, in our day-to-day -day businesses. Uh, and this was our way to learn from people who have been there. And so that that's how the podcast started. We never ended up writing the book. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seven years in here, so. That's an amazing story. So I know in season 11 of the show, one of the things you are looking at is the positive and negative impacts of technology. Why was now the moment to make that your focus? That's a, a great question. Um, you know, we, we just came off a season, the, the previous season was all, um, confessionals. So we, we actually had audience members write us in um, confessions about what was happening in their workplace. And it wasn't always positive. And so we saw this season as kind of like last season, we were looking inward. Now we're looking outward um, at, at society. And I think um, what we're also seeing is a lot of these um, topics bubble up to the surface where people are realizing that social media isn't a force for good. Um, that for-profit companies that that collect mass amounts of data don't have our best interests in mind, surprisingly. And um, before, you know, the internet was fun, and now it's not. It, it's it's, and I more and more people are feeling that. And you know, I, I think with the season, what we've tried to do is contrast that that overwhelming sentiment that is bubbling up is that a lot of these systems that that we've developed online are not actually healthy for us, uh, for our mental health, for for society. Um, but there has also been incredible opportunity that is created by the internet. So it's not all doom and gloom. We don't need to delete it. But we're definitely headed in the wrong direction, and so we felt like we we have um, you know an audience of builders and product people. Um, why not help to tell our side of of or give our perspective on this uh, kind of cultural shift when it really did feel like we are at a moment now where there is a tipping point, and it'll go one way or the other. Um, and we're, we're also kind of, we're at the crux of like web three, we're at the crux of, I don't know, this metaverse in the next five to 10 years. And all of that um, 
knowing what we're getting into and what we're driving towards is incredibly important um, because we consumers and the, the builders have active choices that we can make that will affect what future we decide to build. Um, so part of the season is understanding how the model of the internet advertising and data has gotten us to where we are today. Um, and hopefully that'll help us figure out where we want to go tomorrow. Yeah. And the, what I will add is that, you know, oftentimes when you hear about tech being talked about, it's either it's the best thing in the world, you know, whatever article or whatever episode or, or you know, news story, it's so positive or it's on the other end of the spectrum. It is, it's, it is doom and gloom. It's only doom and gloom. And I think what we're trying to find in, in this season is, um, you know, we, we might, we might ebb and flow in terms of a little left or a little right to that middle, but trying to, trying to bring both sides um, and offer a little bit of perspective. So to those that might be focused on the doom and gloom, well, maybe you might listen to one of our episodes and hear some of the positives that are coming out of something and vice versa. If maybe you're the biggest fan of cryptocurrencies and Hey, I'm not a cryptocurrency hater. We've got an episode coming up. We'll talk about some of the downsides of it too. So trying to give that, that positive, but also the downsides and uh, offer up a little bit of perspective. Yes. The impact of technology, regardless of what department you are in, there's great value in learning more about it. Even if you are in sales or HR, the more that you understand what is going on, the better you are at your job. And as entrepreneurs, you guys know, we definitely need to pay attention. We often don't have the luxury of having a large team. And it comes down to us to see the crucial opportunities and threats that our company is facing. Yeah, absolutely. So for both of you, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase product mindset? Product mindset? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I could tell you what comes to mind for me. Um, I love and I actually used to give a talk about this. I thought about writing a book about this. Actually, my partner, Paul, and I, we started on that. And I said, you know what? It might be a lot easier if I just created a talk. And I just started giving this talk at different conferences. But is that everything is a product. And, and I really do believe that. I mean, whether we're thinking about technology products that we um, are building and that we're trying to put out in the world or or this podcast, you know, our podcast, Rocket Ship, your podcast, like that is a product. You can think of your own personal life as a product and treat it that way. But when you talk about what is the product mindset, I think it's approaching everything with the belief that everything is a product and could be uh, treated that way. And so as an example, you know, what do product people do? Well, product people certainly love to, or at least we ought to be finding problems to solve for. So as you think about my own, my own life at home, right? If we, if we thought about things as um, we're just like, for instance, I have two young kids um, as does Michael. Like if we just thought about our lives as playing triage, it would be very easy by the way, to, as a parent, just think <laughs> of like, I'm just playing triage at home. I'm just putting a bandaid on one thing, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> I'm also trying to stop fights over here. I'm just trying to get through the day. Um, you, you could do that and just get through the day. Or you could try to think of, okay, wait a minute. Why is this chaos happening? There is a problem here. How can we solve for this problem, right? Like what, what are solutions that we could bring forward? How can we iterate? How can we communicate with stakeholders, which might be your spouse at night or might be the kids? I've known, I, I don't do this, but I've known some families that literally do stand-ups. And they have, you know, I don't know if it's every morning or once a week, but 
literally stand-ups uh, to communicate with each other. So um, that's just one example of sort of using the real world. But I do believe that the product mindset just, um, it allows you to look at anything that you're um, working on, whether it be professionally or personally as a product, so to speak. Um, so anyway, that's sort of my take on it. Michael, um, how would you weigh in on it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think um, it's it's a great way to also like, when we're solving problems in our personal lives are the same way that we solve problems um, at work. And so I think it's a great perspective to, to keep in mind. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. Could you tell us what user persona is? I think our listeners have a general understanding of it being a tool where you are putting a generic face to the person that you are building a product or service for, but you guys are experts. If you could help us get a more advanced understanding of this tool. Sure, sure. So um, actually user personas are one of my least favorite devices in building product. Um, I think oftentimes companies, you ask like, who is your user persona? And they give you, you know, a female between 24 and 36 who has XYZ interests, goes, you know, buys a Starbucks in the morning and has a salad for lunch. Um, but it, it gets too narrow, right? And and really what, what we do in product is we solve problems. So our personas should not be um, as rich and complete, right? Um, our personas should really be based around what problem do we solve and who, you know, not necessarily who do we solve it for, but how do we solve it and how do we communicate that? So if you have a product um, like Mike's uh, conference, for instance, right? So the problem is I want to be a product manager or I am a product manager and I don't know what I'm doing. That alone is enough of a persona for Mike to then go market to. And you could break that down into people who have X number of years of experience or live in a certain part of the world, right? Um, but going beyond that, when we put when we put these kind of false narratives in place, um, we're actually restricting who we're talking to rather than opening it up to reach everyone who has that problem. We're starting to narrow our devices down where we're only reaching a fraction of the audience we could be. So I find personas to generally be um, uh, kind of a negative practice within product. And I, I much prefer um, anxieties where we're identifying what anxiety does someone have and how do we help address that? How do we speak to it? Problem solution um, uh, framework, I, I think is a much wider funnel for us to approach this with. And I know Mike actually did an entire episode bringing personas to life that, that we released on, on Rocketship where he took real companies' personas and then went out and, and interviewed people who fit within them. And there were some interesting learnings from that, right, Mike? Yeah, I mean, so, and actually I'll come full circle to this because uh, I will, like, I agree with you, Michael. I, I think using persona, it's not the end all be all, that's for sure. I will say to companies that are starting from scratch or with nothing, it's better than nothing, right? Like, so yeah. if a company were to say, hey, we are our product, we market our product to business people. And so let's build a product for business people. Well, business people is so broad. So you could start with a few personas if you want to whittle it down a little more. Here's the thing. When we did that episode and we literally reached out to people that fit that exact persona for different companies, 
And I reached out to them and he said, Hey, can I have a conversation with you? We're, we're going to do an episode for this podcast. And I just want to have a conversation. I could have a conversation with three people around a persona. They all have exact, they all have completely different perspectives. So I think the, to Michael's point, the limited nature of saying, Hey, this persona, you know, Sally, the teacher, Sally, the teacher loves convenience and she doesn't love, uh, you know, paying a lot of money. Well, that you can't bucket Sally, the teacher into all of these attributes that just aren't real. When you actually talk to a bunch of Sally's, they all have different problems and they'd all have different needs. And um, so I do think it's better to um, I have conversations with your customers. Right. And so I think I don't, you don't need to unnecessarily bucket them. So the personas might be a, might be better than nothing, but I think you could go a lot deeper and you can learn a lot more from your customers. If you have real conversations with them. I agree with you completely. I found it more helpful to gain a deeper understanding of specific clients, the biggest pain points and build products and services for specific biggest pain points that I see emerge as a pattern after having one-on-one in-depth conversations with multiple clients. And those conversations are really focused solely on what are the biggest pain points that clients have. Yep. And if you build your business around those pain points, your goal then in your marketing is to go out and find people who have those pain points, not find people who necessarily look exactly like your current clients. Those are You might get similar results with those, but it's actually very different. Right. So if your marketing becomes, we solve this problem, the people that come to you will have that problem. If your marketing is, we serve companies that look like this, maybe 50% of the people will have the actual problem that you solve, but the other 50% will be rather confused as to why they're in front of you. And so you can, you can take that to both problem solving within your product, but also out to the market to reach the right people. Michael, and you earlier mentioned that you prefer the jobs to be done framework. That framework will not be familiar to many of the listeners. And it is a tool product people might use to understand the users better. You are using it. You guys talk a lot about it. I'm wondering if you can start by telling us what it is and why do product people use it? Yeah, so I think the there's the famous story about the milkshake, right? And this illustrates very clearly exactly actually to your last point, why personas don't solve, you know, customer problems or they don't properly describe the customer problems. So in short, right, Clay Christensen, who's the the founder of of, uh, Jobs to be Done, along with Bob Mesta, um, he was a consultant for Burger King. I believe it was, um, but it was, it was one of it was either Burger King or McDonald's. And they noticed that people were buying milkshakes in the morning and they didn't know why. And, and they wanted to know how can we improve um, improve on this product, right? So he went and he started interviewing people who were perch- who were buying breakfast at McDonald's, right? And um, those people that were buying milkshakes, the milkshake actually solved a very specific problem for them because they had a long commute. And if they bought a coffee, they'd ha- you know, there's other things uh, that aren't conducive to spending, you know, 45 minutes in a car that it causes. You drink it a lot faster, but the milkshake, because it's thick, it would last the entire ride to work. It substituted the breakfast because it was mildly filling. Was it healthy? No, but I mean, that wasn't the customer demographic, right? Um, and so what they did was they ended up making the milkshakes thicker because that's what people wanted. They wanted a longer lasting 
milkshake because they had to drive to work for 45 minutes to an hour. And while they had all of these other options of a bagel or, you know, a, a breakfast sandwich, um, there was this demographic in there where the problem that they needed solved was they were bored on the ride to work and the milkshake satisfied both their boredom and their hunger. Right. And so um, that's kind of what the job to be done of the milkshake was to entertain them and provide enough sustenance for their, their morning commute. Right. Um, and that is different than the, the marketing persona of a person who's hungry in the morning. Right. So they were able to speak to that in, you know, in their marketing um, to better reach more people who wanted that solution, but didn't actually know what product satisfied it. And there's a, there's a bunch of other good examples as well. Um, but the jobs to be done framework is about finding the job that needs to be done, right? Based on whatever anxiety or need of your customer. Um, it sort of flips it, your yeah. flips your thinking a little bit. It's like, instead of, hey, we're, we're creating a, a product or, or I'll put myself in the consumer shoes instead of I'm buying a product just because, right? I, I want, I see that thing and I want that thing. I'm actually hiring that product. I'm hiring it to do a job that I need done. Much like if I had a problem or a pain point, I might hire a consultant to help me solve that problem, right? Instead, I'm actually hiring this product to solve that, uh, to solve that job. And yeah, it, I, Bob Mesta, who Michael referenced, I, he's been a speaker at industry multiple times. Um, he's become a friend of ours. And actually, I'll, I'll never forget when Bob offered to help us interview our customers and really go deep and try to find those underlying jobs. And actually, one of the one of the cases that sort of resulted in the biggest delighter we ever launched um, at our at our conference. You know, we have these conferences, and just like any technology conference, you know, you're you're going to learn all sorts of stuff because you're learning from all these speakers. And you know, you bring a moleskin, you have it filled up, you know, ten pages. But if your company sent you to that conference, and especially if they're spending a lot of money sending you to that conference, you almost feel responsibility to fill up that moleskin. You feel responsibility to come back and educate the rest of the team that wasn't so lucky to go on this trip. And so um, I remember when we were having a conversation with one of our attendees, Bob was picking up on that. And Bob taught us, like, when you interview people, go as deep as you can. You are when you're doing these interviews, you should think of yourself as a documentary filmmaker. You are trying to find the backstory and you need to go deep. So it's not having a 20 minute conversation, have an hour conversation and really go is uncomfortably deep with them. And so um, Bob sort of picked up on that when, when the one uh, attendee mentioned that he was taking notes and Bob goes, okay, um, talk to me about these notes. Like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, yeah, you know, I, I, this was, I was the only person for my company. So I had to report back on, okay, you had to report back on it. What does that mean? What does reporting back look like? And he, keep, he kept digging and digging. And it turns out that this, this person um, felt this need to take as many notes as possible. It was an anxiety for this person. Now, this person never said, by the way, oh, one downside of your conference was nobody took notes for me. And I, took, I had to take these notes all by myself. But Bob was able to, to sort of dig in on this anxiety, this, this pain point that this person was solving for. Um, afterwards, after more conversations and kind of going deeper there, we decided, what if we were to hire a professional journalist to take notes during all of the talks? And at the end of the conference, we just gave people an ebook with all of the notes already. So they didn't even have to worry about it. 
So we tested that at uh, a, a European edition that we put on every spring. And at the very beginning of the conference, we ended up pointing out, hey, by the way, just so everybody knows, there's, I actually don't remember the person's name. I wish I could, but there's Trevor right in the front row. Trevor will be taking notes. And at the end of tomorrow, you will get all of the notes that Trevor took so you don't have to. When we announced that, you saw laptops close. You saw shoulders sort of lighten down. That person, that journalist got a bigger ovation than any speaker did that year. And so uh, it's, it's just a way of approaching problems and pain points a little bit differently. But I, I figure I kind of give that real world example about what jobs to be done sort of meant for us at industry. And this is such a great example, actually amazing example. Mike, so you mentioned that you did this exercise for product collective and industry. And you mentioned an amazing example, but what were other big takeaways for you from those conversations? Oh, from the, from like the jobs to be done conversations? From the interviews with customers. Uh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing you can have is it varies, right? And but you, every time you have conversation with a customer, there's always some sort of nugget that happens now. And, and here's the problem that sometimes people run into. You have one or two or three conversations and it'll be good conversations, but you might come out of those saying, Hey, there's some interesting things, but like now what? Like I, I, I'm not really seeing it, but when you have 10 conversations, 15 conversations, and you start to see some patterns emerge, like for us, when we started to go down the path of, of saying, okay, now tell us more about, um, you know, at the conference, you know, imagine a time where you did have an anxiety and people be like, no, it was a great conference. I said, no, I, I thank you. I appreciate that. But were there times that you ever felt stressed at all for any reason M might not be uh, having to do with the conference. And, and we started here, but well, you know, I was thinking about the work I was missing and that I will have to make up for. And I will think about having to report back at like report back. What do you mean by that? So, you know, it's just about having those conversations, certain things, um, th certain things will emerge. And, you know, I, by the I'll kind of bring it out of product collective a little bit too, because if people are thinking about this and they're like, but I still don't understand, like, what is that job? Like, how's that any different? Um, I, I, I give a talk on this topic too, sometimes just how, how to get started with jobs you've done. And I love to bring up the topic of where I live, Lakewood, Ohio and pizza, because that's totally has nothing to do with my work, but tonight's kind of a good example, right? Like I'm doing this podcast. My wife is finishing up work um, a night like tonight. We don't have a lot of time, you know, to to go and, and make make food tonight. We might be having pizza. I haven't confirmed that with my wife yet, but she might be ordering pizza. The type of pizza we would get tonight would be probably the to a totally different kind of pizza than we would get if we were to have date night or if Michael and his family were to come and visit me. Right. Like it's not just we need pizza. It, it depends on your specific situation, like a night like tonight where we're rushing. I might be going to Little Caesars where I it's like fast food pizza. It's more akin to McDonald's where I literally go up. I don't or have to order anything in advance. The pizza's already sitting there waiting for me. I grab it and I go versus if Michael and his family were to be visiting me, I probably would be going to Angelo's Pizza and getting pizza for us. Angelo's Pizza is this awesome like family pizza place. Tom Hanks, who used to live in Lakewood, um, he always rents it out when he comes here into town. It it is an amazing place. But if I were to order it right now, it won't get to me for an hour and a half at least. It's that good. So it's it's not about like what toppings are better or, you know, what pizza, what sauce tastes better. It's about solving the problem that I have right now. 
And so that's, that's the whole jobs be done. You know, again, we're trying to, we're trying to hire a product to solve that problem. Um, hopefully you could see the differences a little bit there. Mike, and when you worked with Bob, what did Bob bring to the process that you didn't have before? I think it was going deep with customers, going like uncomfortably deep. It was uncomfortable for me anyway. Bob didn't see so didn't seem so uncomfortable. Um, and I I knew that he would go deep because I also remember at speaker dinners that we've had at industry, and he'd start asking questions to other speakers, and he'd ask another question, another, and in my mind I'm like, oh my gosh, he's he's doing a job to be done interview right now, and they don't even know it. But that was the that was the key thing was Bob going very, very deep and again, treating it like we're a documentary filmmaker. We need to get the backstory and we even tell the the, uh, you know, the the customer when we're interviewing them up front, we even say that up front, like we are treating this as if we're documentary filmmakers. So if we ask you things that might be uh, different than other people know, that's why. And honestly, they get into it. They're sort of like, OK, I I'm up for you know, use me as this experiment. I'm into it. And so um, that's the biggest takeaway I've gotten from Bob. How did he get so deep? Was it just asking very specific questions, going a level deeper, the five wise concept, kind of having to follow up and dig deeper? Or did he also ask some types of initial questions that you did not commonly use before? You know, I think it's probably more, I don't know that Bob necessarily uses the five whys specifically, but it might be more along those lines. I mean, I will say we, when we go into one of those interviews, we have an idea of, of the problems that we want to ask about, but it also isn't, you know, you might have a couple or a few questions jotted down to sort of start things off, but there's no, there's no interview script, so to speak, um, that you need to be able to read you know, how the person's answering the questions and depending on their answers, that's, it's almost like, you know, we know that we're going to get to a destination. We don't know what that destination is going to be. We have to let the customer get us there from the questions that or from the answers rather that they're giving. So I would say it might be more closer to the, the first part of that, where it's continuing to ask and not accepting an answer for just at face value. It's asking why, you know, saying things like, what do you mean by that? Or, you know, they might, I remember in one example, they brought up, um, you know, yeah, I came to industry to level up my skills. And Bob said, level up your skills. You know, what does level up mean? I think Bob knew what level up meant, but we need to hear it in the, in the words of the customer and have them define it for us. And that's what made how Bob approaches it a little bit different than what I was used to in the past. And it's, it's, um, he also uses the term like an FBI interrogation. Mm. And so I remember there was a point we released some of these interviews with Bob um, and some of the attendees of industry on in full. So you can actually go to the rocket ship feed and find them. It's from a couple of years ago, um, but you can listen to the full hour long session on uninterrupted. Um, but there's, there's the details that he hones in on, which um, like he wants to know the time at which you're deciding to buy the ticket. Right. Where were you? What were your surroundings? Who did you have to check with? Right. Because like part of it is, oh, I need to, um, you know, I, I need to convince work to pay for it. But the other part is you have to get coverage for your for your child care. Right. If you have kids, you have to check with your spouse. You have to you know, there, there's other life events that he that he was digging into that really 
it illustrates the full breadth of this decision that they were making by choosing to go. What were they giving up by getting on a plane and going to Cleveland, Ohio for, for two or three days? What were the best days of the week for them to do that? Because, you know, parents may not want to be away on the weekend because they, they want to spend time with their family, um, all kinds of stuff, right? And so, but he, he's, he's interested in every minute detail. And then he's zooming out and, and putting together the pieces, right? But without knowing every detail, you don't even know what pieces there are to put together. So the fascinating part that, that I found was it was more than just like the five whys. It was really about scientifically trying to mm. piece back together the experience of, in, in one case, purchasing a ticket to industry. And there was like five days that he goes through, right? It was more than just that moment of purchase, but he wanted to know everything around that purchase, everyone that he had to talk to about that purchase and all of the decisions that he had to make that would lead them to actually purchasing or not purchasing the ticket so that Mike could then, you know, better design the product around that that full experience, which is a lot more than browsing on a website, worrying about the color of the button, and if it's red, more people will click, right? It, it goes way beyond that level of um, optimization. And I think that's the key to, especially when, when Bob Mesta does an interview, but the jobs to be done framework is really about learning those, those underlying concerns that someone may have, which may be completely unrelated to the product that you're offering them at that moment. Michael, and you mentioned earlier to us, you actually brought up the jobs to be done in the beginning of the interview. So do you have any aha moment stories you could share with us when you use this framework? Sure. Um, you know, a uh, quick example from, sorry, my mic's, uh, quick example from like Dribble, right? And so um, we have a cohort of designers who freelance and one of the, the big, um, big anxieties that they have is not knowing where their next project is coming from. And so for, for a long time, we were trying to optimize for them winning the project, right? Which is hard because there's, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into someone actually hiring you. Um, but what we, we started to experiment was, could we give them a list of leads that's available? And, and what we realized was, that helped to solve the problem of, I feel anxious not knowing where my next project is coming from. We didn't necessarily have to win them the next project, but we could provide a resource that they knew that there were projects available when they needed them, when, when they had a gap, right? And that they could use us to help fill that. And so it changed the way that, that we approached the actual problem solving which, which went from ensuring that you know, they, they win the project and that everyone wins a project every single month to can we provide them with some sort of assurance that there is more work out there and that they have access to it. And, and that was a lot easier for us to solve because we have a lot of people hiring freelancers. So as we opened up that list and it, we, we changed it from a one-to-one -one relationship of client to designer to a one-to-many of, you know, here's the project and a lot of people are bidding on it. Um, it did help to, to ease their anxiety of, I don't know where my next piece of work is coming from, which was really what was driving them to try to invest in a freelance project. Um, so anyway, or a, a freelance solution. So that, that was one of the, the, you know, 
things that we learned through many of these jobs to be done style interviews. And it really did change the way subtly that we approach solving that in the market. So the point of the jobs to be done is to gain understanding of what the product satisfies for the client. And Michael, you mentioned that it is kind of an interrogation technique as if you are doing a criminal investigation. Have you guys had any clients who were put off by this line of questioning? And how would you avoid making your clients regret agreeing to have that interview with you and help you? For me, I always want to leave my clients, our clients, better off and feeling good after they interact with us. Well, well, luckily they're not guilty of anything, so they don't have anything to hide in the in these cases. Um, I mean, you you can kind of tell when people are maybe uncomfortable, you know, or they don't they don't want to share. And you know, luckily we're not trying to to solve you know murder cases or uh, high crimes, um, and so it's pretty easy to back off at that point, change the subject, maybe come back to it at a different angle is a great way to do it. If, if you do notice that maybe you're pushing a little bit too hard and maybe they don't know how to answer, they don't know what you're looking for. Um, generally, also with a smile, right? As we shouldn't be uh, grilling them. Uh, th- these are, are more friendly conversations. I, I think the techniques may come from FBI interrogation, um, but the, the conversation should feel friendly. And so you, you kind of, you can kind of feel it out. And that's where Mike was saying, there's no script, right? For this, it really is like a journey and it's often a me- meandering one. Um, and so you, you change topic, you go somewhere else. And this is what an interrogator would do anyway. And you kind of come back to that that root of what you're trying to get at from a different angle. And maybe at that point, you'll get a different uh, answer. Sometimes you don't get it. And, you, and you know, not every interview is going to be fruitful. Um, but that's that's kind of the the investment in it there. But yeah, there's many techniques to kind of back off. Um, and uh, you don't want to push too far because at the end of the day, these are still your customers or potential customers. So you don't want to leave them uh, with a bad uh, feeling. Absolutely. And I guess you also need to select people on your team who are really good people, people. Yes. <laughs> and they're generally incredibly likable. So then you have an easier conversation. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, you, what is it? You win more friends with honey or something. Yes. Um, so like that, it, that's the idea though, right? Like these should not be, feel like an interrogation, but the information that you're trying to dig out should be the level of depth that you would want to be if you were an FBI interrogator. Um, but yes, no one is guilty and, and you should treat them as such. So Mike, what did you learn from those interviews you did for industry? What were the jobs that you thought clients were hiring industry for? And what changed in your understanding after you went through that process with Bob? Yeah, well, when we were first sort of starting to approach things, we thought people came to industry, you know, to to learn from the best product people, to meet other people and find inspiration in their work, right? And then we were like that. When we really think about it, that's what they're coming to industry for. The thing is, you can say that about, any conference, any conference at all, people are coming to learn from the people, they're coming to meet people and they're coming to find inspiration. So it's like, no, what specifically about industry though? And so when we really boiled it down, it's people are coming to answer the question that they're constantly asking themselves, which is, am I doing this right? And and that 
that is a, a difference than other conferences. But again, I go back to the point that for product management, none of us went to school for this. We all got into product management from different ways. For myself, it was as an entrepreneur. For other people, it might have been coming as a designer or a developer or a consultant. Um, but we were sort of, we all feel this collective feeling of being dropped into this role and then you have to figure things out. And so when I, when we really boiled it down to that, understanding that people are coming to answer the question, am I doing this right? It changes the way that you market the conference. It, it might change some even um, products that you offer. And so for us, again, things like those notes, that was to cure one anxiety, but it also was to give people a takeaway that they could feel a little bit more confident in their, you know, that they could revert back to something and, and almost as like a, a guide of sorts later on. Um, that That's really, it, it's understanding um, when you get to that level, like you change the way you market, you change the way that you even come out with products. At least that's how it was for us. I know we haven't spoke much about user personas, but if we for a brief moment can take a look at both of them together, could you sum up for us what are the benefits and limitations of user persona versus the jobs to be done? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, the the big, I think user personas can be beneficial if you want to um, paint a picture of who your ideal customer is, right? And if you want to quickly be able to communicate that and those traits and those properties to maybe people on your team, maybe your marketing team. I think the downside of that is it's too limiting and you're going to miss out on your core audience. Whereas jobs to be done is going to be able to help you reach a wider audience because really what you're looking at is you know what is the anxiety that they have what are they hiring you to do and there's many more people that fit into that segment than would a persona which often has unnecessary characteristics um and with jobs to be done you, you'll also it, it is a since it's a research method you'll be able to use it to actually improve your product whereas a user persona comes after your product is developed and you're deciding who you want to market to. It does not necessarily help inform you of what directionally you should do with your product. Whereas jobs to be done is that research methodology that will help to build your roadmap um, and, and tell you or help give you ideas at least of what you should be building and what direction you should be headed in. Yeah, it's almost like you could think of it as a user persona is an artifact. It's, it's a yeah. thing, it's something. Um, jobs to be done is more of a framework. Um, theoretically, you could use jobs to be done, that process, to come up with user personas. I mean, you, if you were like bent on having user personas at your company, you could still use jobs to be done. It's not an either or. Um, yeah. You could use them to inform the personas that you're coming up with. But yeah, you could think of it as a user persona is literally this artifact um, that exists within your company, whereas jobs to be done is, is a process. It's a framework. Are there any other, maybe one or two tools or techniques that people should be aware of in addition to the two we discussed? I think it depends what problem you're looking to solve, right? So there's there's frameworks for product management, right? And there's 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 agile to waterfall to scrum, right? And I, I think um, none of them are necessarily apples to apples. Right. And so I think it really depends on what problem you're trying to solve. And there's probably someone who has a thought about that. Um, but even within the jobs to be done framework, 
there's actually two factions of, of, and schools of thought within it. Um, well, let's and, talk about that. Well, I, I don't want to get too deep because um, <laughs> I don't actually know, but, um, but we get in trouble all the time when we talk about jobs to be done. And some people like agree with what we're saying on the podcast. We're, we're on like the, I don't know, the Bob Mesta side of things. Um, but there is this counter uh, belief that is a bit more uh, stringent, I believe, and, and there are a bit more rules. And so sometimes we do, even as we're speaking of jobs to be done, um, we, we do say things that are contrary to, to their beliefs of what jobs to be done is. So um, like with any of these, like with Scrum, like with Agile, I think it's generally important to, um, it's less important to adhere to the process and it's more important to solve the problem that you have. And so these are all frameworks that are designed to give guidance on how to solve a problem. Um, however, every problem is unique, right? And needs, needs its own set of solutions. So oftentimes you start with one of these frameworks like personas or jobs to be done. Um, but I think it's important to allow yourself to you know, bend the rules a bit, mold it to your specific needs um, because if you're too stringent to the process, you may actually miss something because now you're, you're successful in running the process, but you may not be successful in actually solving the problem that you set out to in the first place. So I don't think that answered your question. I apologize. But <laughs> uh, no, don't worry about it. One of the things that I like about both of those tools is how both of them are naturally creating more empathy for customers and clients. Could you summarize for us in what way do each of these tools create more empathy with users? So I, I think with personas, right, the, the empathy creation is done by trying to humanize the, the need, right? Um, and humanize the person who's on the other side of that screen. Oftentimes, like we build products and we don't know who's on the other side. I mean, Mike and I put out a podcast. We don't see people listening to it. Right. I just see numbers on a screen of, you know, X number of listeners every week. People seem to like this episode. They didn't like this. But what we do miss in that is, you know, we have may, may have had an episode that not a lot of people listen to, but it may have had a profound effect on a few. We'll never know. Right. So but regardless of that, I think too often um, our, our customers and the people that we're serving are not human. They are numbers uh, to us today is what we work online. And so I think personas, the goal of that is to try to humanize the person on the other side and then help us craft the narrative to speak to them. Um, I think with jobs to be done, just running the process and the framework forces you to actually talk to your customers, get to know them, hopefully on a deeper level than you would um, with a user survey or, you know, a, a eight point questionnaire, but you're going to spend an hour with multiple people and really learn who they are, what makes them tick, what are they nervous about, what are they scared of, what anxieties do they have, what keeps them up at night. And so I, I think the process in general gives you a more humane look at who are the people that you're serving. What is the problem that you serve for them? And what are other problems that maybe you can help solve um, within the framework of your business? So that I'll hand it over to Mike. No, I, I think you put it put it um, really well. I mean, there might be some people listening saying, uh, well, hey, look, I'm a user researcher and I do user interviews all the time. And 
So what makes the jobs, you know, do I need to change to the jobs to be done style? Um, you know, what, what, what's the difference between my interview and the jobs to be done interview? And the answer might be nothing. It, it might be that you're already doing a jobs to be done interview and you don't know it. If the way that you're approaching your interview, you know, at the end of that interview, you're able to find out what was the struggling moment, because that's a big deal with jobs to be done, looking for that struggling moment. What were the pushes and the pulls and the anxiety and the inertia? These are terms I, I don't, we don't have to get into all the terms. Those are some terms from jobs to be done, but as an example, like a push might be, um, I'm feeling this pain point of whatever it might be. You know, the person at my conference, they felt that pain point of all of a sudden a wave of anxiety came over them that they're going to have to report back. That's a push. It's pushing them to a solution. A pull might be, um, let, let's just say different example for pizza, right? I see that little Caesars commercial. That's a pull for me, right? I, I see the potential solution and now it's pulling me towards it. If, if somebody's conducting an interview and they can end the interview and, and describe each of those things, the struggling moment, the pushes, the pulls, they've kind of already done that job. So you done interview that, but they didn't know it. They were approaching it um, maybe in a slightly different way, but they got to that same destination. Um, the, if you're doing that, if you're going to that level, like Michael said before, you're, you're going to be able to empathize with your customers in a way that you just simply wouldn't have before. I mean, a 20, quick 20 minute interview might be nice, might really take into account your customers, you know, busy schedule, but you won't really know those, those anxieties that they have. You won't really dig into that struggling moment. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's one of the big things. And it's one of the big benefits of it is that we can be more empathetic towards our customers because we actually are digging in with them on what those, you know, what those uh, things actually are. Yeah. And to that point, I think oftentimes we focus way too much on our own product mm. and how do we, we, we lose track of what's happening around our product and, and what is either allowing them to use it or not allowing them again, taking the conference as an example, you know, going remote opened up the conference to so many more people who maybe couldn't leave for whatever reason. Right. Um, and understanding why couldn't they come is just as important as understanding those that could, um, and opening up those opportunities for accessibility, I think is incredibly important. Um, but uh, yeah, so in a 20 minute interview, you're really just asking, does my solution solve your problem um, with an hour long interview and with the right questions and with the right interest, you can really learn a lot more about them beyond just how do they use your specific software? You know, what does their day look like? What does their work look like? What do they have to deal with? What happens when they get off work? All of those things matter when you're trying to, uh, to build a solution for someone. Um, and that's oftentimes with, with lighter research or just with data, we cannot see those aspects of our customers' lives. Have you ever done the jobs to be done customer interview for your show? No, we, I think we talked about it, but we, we, we actually, I don't think we ever got around to doing it. It's a great no. idea. Though. No, I mean, yeah. we've done, like Michael said before, we've covered jobs to be done on the show to, um, you know, again, talking with Bob about industry, but part of it is also the show. I'll let Michael speak to it, but the show isn't exactly uh, about creating something that we think customers want. Part of it is, <laughs> and this is like, 
part of it is, is this is our creative expression. This is like our, this is a creative thing for us. So if we wanted to do that, I would probably ask somebody to turn the tables and interview us because really this show is more, it, it, I don't want to say it's, it's it just for us because it's not. And I love hearing from listeners, especially that are big fans. And, and it, it's always really, really fun. But this show gives us a lot of a lot of stuff, too. And um, so I know that's kind of my my take on it. I agree. I agree. It's a creative outlet. It's definitely is in, in wrapped up in a business podcast. But um, yeah, I, I think I think for the most part, we we've avoided it because we've wanted to create that that creative freedom. And I think what happens um, if you're building a product, you're doing the same thing over and over again, I think within a creative endeavor, which is really what Mike and I need since we build products all day. Um, it really is like Mike said, it, it's about what we want to bring into the world. And, you know, I, I don't think Andy Warhol, it's solving a different problem, right? <laughs> but would he go out and ask his customers, what do they want? No, they're looking at him to say, you know, you tell me, what what the next coolest thing is what is the next trend right and i, I think it's it's uh not that we're anywhere close to andy warhol no. but the idea being um for us it is a creative outlet and i think if we treated it as a product we wouldn't be as exploratory as we are today with it now we might make more money from it, right? We might absolutely. Who, yeah. who knows? <laughs> um, the, the benefit is we don't have to sell it, right? Like we're we're we we love having a lot of listeners, but the reality is like we're creating it, not necessarily to have a lot of listeners. And so I think when you're in that position where that the goal doesn't need to be, hey, we need to double listeners and triple listeners and what yeah. you know, trying to fine tune everything, you probably approach it a little bit differently. Yeah. And being so passionate about your show, I think is really the only way to have an amazing show. But I wonder, what do you think is the job that your show helps your listeners? Oh, I think it helps them get to work in the morning. It's the 20 <laughs> minute, it's the walk in the morning. It's the ride to work, right? It's filling that space where they want to be entertained, but they also want to um, gain some knowledge. And I think we've always tried to, to kind of straddle that line of um, being educational, but also not taking ourselves too seriously um, in it and not being overly quantitative um, and prescriptive, but really trying to humanize the experience that we have in building product, right? And um, giving a, a wider perspective of what that means. Um, I think for a while we were trying to be a show that taught people how to do things, either sales or marketing. Um, but I think over time we leaned more into the storytelling because that's the what you remember. That's what you walk away with. Um, like when, when you ask what is jobs to be done, now there is a definition of jobs to be done, but what I remember is the milkshake story, right? And And so that helps to illustrate the point of the definition, but it's also something that for now years, uh, people have walked around within their head as a way to comprehend what is the concept of jobs to be done without necessarily just repeating the definition. And so anyway, I, I, I think um, the, the role that we fill is both entertaining and educational. And we've tried to straddle that, that line while opening up uh, the concept of what is a business podcast and, and what does it mean to tell stories within the world of business? Yeah, and I actually think the entertainment aspect of it 
is maybe even more important because, you know, if you were to ask people like, Hey, what, what do you look for in business podcasts? And they're like, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to learn, you know, I'm trying to pick up these concepts and, and that's what it's really all about. Well, you, they could download, you know, episodes of teachings from mm -hmm. different universities and, and some of them, I think actually I've, I've listened to, you know, some lectures from Stanford from professors that are entertaining, right? From professors that go, it's beyond the whiteboard and okay, class, open up your books. You know, that's not really what people are looking for. They, they want to feel like they're getting smarter, but in, at the same time, whether they're, they're, they say it and whether they know it or not, it needs to be entertaining enough to capture their attention. And that's why I think the storytelling, it's awesome for us because we love storytelling. It's that creative outlet for us. But it is great for the listeners, too, because they're, they're now able to feel like they got a little smarter. Hopefully they did. But while being entertained at the same time. You want to make learning to be enjoyable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. how we remember things. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same way I try to coach my five-year-old daughter's soccer team. You know, the, the Scooby-Doo's. We've been at it for a couple seasons now. And I want the kids to have fun. But I also want them learning new soccer skills, right? And um, yeah, I don't know if I approach Rocket Ship exactly the same way I do as head coach of the Scooby-Doo's, but it's all not that all far off. How do you guys engage with your audience? Oh, man, we're terrible at it. Yeah. <laughs> I would like some advice on, on how to Mike and I are so busy. Um, I, I don't even know if we announce new episodes most of the time. Um, we do our best, but, um, yeah, we, we've kind of let the show speak for itself. And I think that's, um, that's where we're at today with it as much as, you know, we obviously when people reach out, we respond, but, um, for the most part, we've really let the show and the audience carry the marketing um, and let the content speak for itself. Yeah, I will say I, I do get to enjoy it a little bit more than Michael because, you know, I run this product management community and, and our podcast is directed at product people and entrepreneurs, but, you know, product people being a big part of it. And, you know, there's 30,000 product people that are part of product collective. So oftentimes when I'm reaching out or I'm, I'm walking the show floor at industry, People, I might be talking and I have gotten stopped before at a place like industry where people are like, hey, wait, you, I recognize your voice. I saw, I saw you up on stage, but I recognize your voice. And then you f come to find out it's a rocket ship listener. And so I get to probably meet a lot more of them and talk to them more so than Michael, um, just for my role at Product Collective. But um, it is it is it is fun. And we do we do enjoy it, although to Michael's point, you know, it's not like we are pounding Twitter or other places for, you know, to, to connect with listeners. Um, but I do love when they do reach out. Yeah. Of course. I definitely want to send our listeners to go listen to your show. Before we do that, do you guys have anything else you would like to add or share? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. We, we covered a wide range of things today. I think, um, I, I think the big thing is, you know, I appreciate you, uh, asking listeners to check out our show rocket ship. And, you know, we sure hope our listeners can check out your show as well. But I, what I would challenge everybody to do is pick three other shows to check out that you've never checked out before. I mean, there are amazing podcasts that are out every single day, not all on business, right? Like some of my favorite podcasts are, have nothing to do with business at all. There's, uh, sometimes I scratch my true crime itch. Sometimes I scratch my <laughs> fantasy football itch, but I'm a big podcast guy. 
And I definitely believe there are amazing shows coming out all the time. So I just encourage people to check out other business podcasts, but also maybe find out if you have a hobby or something like that, check out some other podcasts that might scratch your own itch too. Where can listeners find you guys? Yeah, just search for rocketship.fm. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, we're literally everywhere. Or you can go to rocketship.fm um, on the web and find all the episodes there. There's over like, I think we're approaching 500 now. So there is hours and hours of uh, listener enjoyment if you would like to dive into <laughs> Michael, I think 500 was like a couple dozen episodes ago. I think we're past that. Are Mike we? makes okay. us feel a little old, but but yeah, I, I do hope people could join us at rocketship.fm. Um, I also would invite people, especially if, if you're product focused and you're a product person, definitely check us out at productcollective.com. Um, you can meet Michael and I in person at industry when we have it, uh, industryconference.com. Um, I, it's a conference we've been organizing since 2015. We'll have a thousand product people with us next fall in 2022. That'll be our big in-person return. Um, we've actually got indie filmmaker, Mark Duplass. I say filmmaker, but gosh, he's won an Emmy before. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, he's one, he's one of my favorite product product people. He is a product person in a way. One of my favorite filmmakers has, uh, produces acts, directs. He's awesome. Um, and some of the best product people around today so they'll all be with us at industry so hope to meet some of y'all in person there too sounds amazing and we have done over 500 as well between our channels so i completely understand the work that goes into it great thank you both very much thanks everyone again for tuning in my guest today again has been michael saka and mike belsito make sure you check out this show it's called rocketship.fm and i'll see you next time And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.